0: I'm going to pray together, and then I'm going to actually begin my message and read this text of Scripture from Acts 17, uh, just just a couple of minutes in. Just want to set it up a little bit before we read this text, but I would invite you even now to turn with me to Acts 17. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses together today in our continuing trek through the book of Acts. So thankful for others who have made contribution in this series, uh, surely not least, Todd Walker over these past two weeks uh, in Acts 16, and uh, just very effective and, um, and deeply appreciated proclamation of the Word. So let's pray together, then let's look into this text and see what the Lord has for us in it. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that we can be together, even as we have already experienced And then expressed, there is no joy in this life, no joy in this life like gathering together with the people of God for corporate worship. And Father, I pray that you would deepen that joy in each one of our hearts and for each one this morning, Father, who is struggling with rival joys. I pray, Lord God, that You would minister to them by Your Spirit, through Your Word, through through the corporate worship of this body, through the fellowship with one another, to strengthen that joy, to wean us from this world, and to get our eyes focused on the true and living God and our citizenship in heaven with Him. Father, that we might live in a manner worthy of you in this world, and even that we might treat our citizenship in this world in the way that we ought. Help us, Lord God, and help us now, I pray, particularly by the preaching of the Word. Help us to see what it looks like to live in this world and to be proclaimers of the gospel and to feel the opposition of the world and to know what to do with it. Toward that end, Father, we pray for Your Spirit's help and guidance and protection of our minds and hearts against distraction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The world turned upside down. That's my title this morning. This generation will recognize that title as... The stirring song sung in Hamilton, celebrating and reflecting on the victory of the colonial army in the siege of Yorktown, 1781. Actually, that siege probably began this coming week in 1781 and continued on into the month of October. In that musical, that rendition in the first act of the world turned upside down as the colonial army realized that they had won this war and won independence. And surely that statement also expresses the presence of, of highly dramatic events of, of so many sorts, but not every sort gets that kind of description. The world turned upside down. Perhaps Copernicus's discovery of the heliocentric solar system was one of them. Perhaps Einstein's discovery of the special theory of relativity and then the general theory of relativity The world turned upside down. But this description, powerful as it is, seldom used though it should be, goes a lot further back than any of the events that I've just referenced historically. These words go all the way back to the first century, they were spoken by irate Jews assessing the work of Paul and Silas in their proclamation of the gospel in Thessalonica. Let's look at Acts 17 and hear how they used it and also recognize the amazing work that was going on through the missionary teams in those days. Acts chapter 17 Beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. "...set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So reads the Word of God. As we begin, let me pose a very different question than the one I've been working on so far. Despite what's going on here, there is a question that ought to be in our minds if we've been paying attention in Acts as this this series has progressed. A bit different question, namely this. How is it possible that people read the book of Acts and find miraculous signs and wonders for today and supernatural gifts of communication and prescriptive instruction on church polity and practice, and yet miss the suffering that all messengers of the gospel endure in imitation of Christ? How is it possible that we read the book of Acts and come away with that? It's an important question. So let's have that in our mind as we progress through this because I think what we're going to find here is that that latter category, the suffering of all messengers of the gospel, is what we are seeing in the book of Acts. And yes, there are dramatic and amazing manifestations of the power of God to spread the gospel to the very ends of the earth as He has called these missionaries to do. And yet there will be great suffering for them along the way. We want to be so selective in our reading of Acts that that we really long for and yearn after these supernatural manifestations that we've been seeing, missing all the while what it actually costs us to walk with Jesus in real life, real space, real time. Let's see how that was working for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke in this text. Today's text is yet another of those in Acts that is very forgettable on its own. If we were to ask before my saying anything about this text, for how many of you are the first 15 verses of Acts 17 among your favorite stories of the Bible? I don't think any of us would have raised our hand. The most familiar part of this passage is probably the Berean response, searching the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's interesting. We have to set that in context as we move through today's passage, but this is a forgettable passage of Scripture. This isn't one of our favorites, and yet I believe it teaches some lessons that are quite relevant for us today, especially as we share the gospel and suffer for it. So let's look into the text with that in mind. Let's take it in four parts that you see listed there in your bulletin. It's actually only two parts, and you can see that in the text. It's Thessalonica and Berea. So how do we get four parts out of it? Well, we actually get two parts happening twice. There's two things that happen in each town, and that's what you see in my very original outline here. A fresh start in verses 1 through 4, a familiar scuffle in verses 5 through 9. A fresh start in verses 10 through 12, a familiar scuffle in 13 through 15. So it took me a long time and uh, much imagination to come up with that. But that's going to be the guidance through the text this morning, and I think it gets at the heart of the matter. Many fresh starts in life, heading off to Pittsburgh, coming into Warrenville. Many fresh starts in life, and yet familiar scuffles follow them all. It's not until we step into the very presence of God in heaven that the battles of this life are over. They just change face and name as we move around in this life, and we see that in the experience of the missionary team this morning in Acts 17. So let's move into this text and see what we learn from it. A fresh start, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. After getting out of prison in Philippi, you'd think these guys would take a break, Right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, possibly Luke, traveled on southwest 94 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. They traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica. We see in verse 1, the city's the capital of the Macedonian area, the Roman Empire at that time. Unlike Philippi, there was a Jewish synagogue here. So that's exactly where Paul and Silas went. That's what they do. That's their custom. Evidently, sometime later, they may have also been a Samaritan synagogue here in Thessalonica, which may be why Paul calls this one or why Luke calls this one specifically there in verse 1, a synagogue of the Jews, because there was a different synagogue there uh, as well. Well, the team visited this synagogue on three successive weeks, we see in verse 2. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the promised Messiah. This is Paul preaching to the Jews. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one you've been looking forward to. This is the one who is going to change everything about your experience in this world and the next. This is the promised Messiah. Paul explained this to them from the Scriptures, Luke records here in verse 2. That means from our Old Testament. Paul was preaching, explaining, and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, meaning to die And then to rise from the dead. Paul was likely using passages like Psalm 2 or Psalm 16 or even Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most often quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament, Psalm 110. But almost certainly, he'd also use Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And as he did, he would identify then the suffering servant in that passage as the Christ, as the Messiah. Israel would have thought of that suffering servant as being themselves, that they were the ones suffering, and they were the ones through whom salvation would be poured out to the world. In different places, it's hard to know in those four servant songs who is actually being talked about. Is it an individual or is it a group? Is it the nation Paul would have been explaining, no, this, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Wouldn't you have loved to to have heard him make that point? I would love to have heard the preaching of Paul there in Thessalonica proving that it was necessary for Jesus to die and rise again in order for the fulfillment of God's promises to be realized. Turn with me, if you would, just for a moment. Keep your finger in Acts 17, but flip over to Isaiah 53 for just a moment. And if you're using a phone, just flip over there. I know you can't stick your finger anywhere in there. So hopefully it has a memory. Hopefully you have a memory. (laughs) It's page 614 in your pew Bible, by the way, if you need that. Surely, Paul would have zeroed in on verse 10 in Isaiah 53. And that's the one I want you to just have open in front of you while we talk about it for a minute here. Because such an important point. We can think that the resurrection isn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. We can think that it was murky and unclear that, that the Messiah would have to suffer and die. But there are familiar passages a little earlier in Isaiah 53 that say it express, expressly. Surely He has borne our grief. Surely He has carried our sorrows. But when you get here to verse 10, look at that. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. What you're told there is that the death of Christ was not just necessary, but it was God's will to crush him. This is God, Yahweh, fulfilling God's plan. His purpose is being realized in the crushing of the servant, whom Paul would say is the Messiah. He put him to grief. So the crucifixion was not just the will of God, it was the work of God, the active work of God. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, which by the way is just what Jesus' sacrifice was, if we could have a whole message on this text, that's what we would dig into. This, this sacrifice of Jesus being a guilt offering. And if we dipped back into Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 6, what we would see there is that the very characteristic of the guilt offering is a meticulous matching between the offense and the cure. So when Isaiah records the words here, and he says, with his soul he makes an offering for guilt, he's tying that in with Israel's understanding of a guilt offering and saying it's the will of God to crush him, It's the work of God to crush Him, and what He's doing in that crushing is making a specific, meticulous sacrifice for the sins of all who believe. All of that packed into one verse of Isaiah 53, and not the one we would routinely note, but surely one that Paul would pick up on. Just what Jesus' sacrifice was, a meticulous, exact sacrifice, Remedy for the sin of all who believe. And there I am quoting a a commentator, a respected commentator on the book of Isaiah. He shall see his offspring is the next thing we read in this text. Meaning essentially this is going to produce fruit. This sacrifice that he has made for the guilt of sinners is going to reconcile them to God. It's going to produce fruit. He shall... See his offspring. A connection is drawn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. He will bring many sons to glory. He shall prolong his days. There's the resurrection. He shall live on. He shall be raised. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, we read here. He'll accomplish the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord is to crush him and to produce many sons for his glory through the sacrifice of this servant. He'll accomplish the will of the Lord. It will prosper in his hands. He will enact it. He will finish it. As Paul stated it to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what Paul's preaching in the Thessalonian synagogue. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The Word of God promised it. And it was absolutely necessary for our salvation. This was precisely the will and the work of God according to the Scriptures. That's verse 2. Verse 4, And this work was now bearing fruit Right here in Thessalonica. Some of those sons raised up for glory were coming from this town. Three weeks of ministry, it would appear. For all practical purposes, it appears as though Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica for three weeks. And the Thessalonian church that is praised so highly in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, these Macedonians whose heart for the gospel was so great that they gave sacrificially even beyond their means to meet the needs of the suffering church in Judea. This group that sounds like mature believers resulted from three weeks of ministry by Paul and Silas. And then the work of the Spirit and the follow-up visits that we'll see about even as this text progresses. It was bearing fruit there in Thessalonica, verse 4. Some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. This may refer to women from the upper class economically, or it might be the wives of, of political leaders or business leaders in the city, but influential women. Seems to be a theme in this text too. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. So there's the fresh start. The work of God being done through the missionaries and the saving of souls there in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. But then comes a familiar scuffle. Again, provoked to jealousy, likely by the Gentiles' conversion to what they perceived to be a distortion of their religion, these Jews. The Jews there in Thessalonica, in verse 5, set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason, where we see in verse 7 is where the team was staying. They didn't just pick him randomly, this was the man offering hospitality to the team. And then we read there in verse 5, taking some wicked men of the rabble. That's a funny description, isn't it? They hired some thugs is what it means, but you are never going to surpass the description of the King James Version here in verse 5 of Acts chapter 17 certain wicked men of the rabble, that's how ESV does it. King James translates this, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> how can you be impressed by the evil of a group of guys and kind of impressed by the language at the same time? Like, wow, that's a, that's a great way to say it. I don't know that I wouldn't be described that way, but I'm going to always remember that, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. In any case, the Jews hired them They staged a riot with a hired mob. Does that sound familiar? This practice, which we still see today when emotions run high on controversial issues, actually has a long and infamous history. It's not new. And it's not unique to one side or the other of an argument. It's present on both. But this is how the Jews addressed their disagreement with the preaching of the gospel from Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. They hired a mob and staged a riot. The mob rushed Jason's house, we're told in verse 5, but didn't find Paul and Silas there, verse 6, so they dragged Jason and some of the other Christians before the authorities, verse 6. They did all that instead. Look at the end of verse 6, and here it is. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These guys are famous for undercutting Jewish faith or so the Jews perceived. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's quite an accusation. And Jason's complicity with the team Which came in the form of his offering hospitality to them, resulted in his house getting stormed by this mob. And as a result of that, in the eyes of these folks, these Jews, it should be viewed as treason against Rome. That's what you see in verse 7. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This is sedition. This is the worst you can have in a civilized society. Rebellion against the government and the naming of a new king. And for a time, it did turn the world upside down right there in Thessalonica, It threw the whole city into turmoil. Verse 5, you see it again in verse 8. Jason and the others were forced to to post bond, verse 9, in order to return home. But this is likely different than we think. Bond worked differently in that day. It wasn't posting bond to make sure that they would show up for their court appearance as though they were accused of something. This meant that Jason and the rest had put up security to ensure that Paul and Silas would cause no more trouble there in Thessalonica, meaning that they had to leave the city quietly and never return. And if that happened, then Jason and the brothers would get their deposit back. The bond worked that way in this situation. So if the team didn't leave town, Jason and the rest would forfeit their bond or If the team came back to town sometime later, Jason and the others would forfeit their bond. This is probably the reason why, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And here we have a new fresh start in verses 10 through 12. This may well have been what Paul was referring to over in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he wrote to the Thessalonian church. Do you remember these words? We just studied them together a year or so ago. We wanted to come to you, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. I, Paul, again and again, I wanted to come to you. But Satan hindered us. That's how he put it there in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 2. And it's very possible he was referring to this very arrangement right here. That this is the hindrance of Satan to the gospel advance in Thessalonica. Satan is hindering him by this agreement that has been made that he can't come back to this city again. So Satan's opposition doesn't just show itself in physical persecution. Illness and the like. Inconvenient circumstances. This is all out war. And Paul is aware of the fact that he's not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Satan is at work here, and he's keeping Paul out of Thessalonica, and that is part of the mission. This is the Apostle Paul. But there was still fruit. In Berea, there was another Jewish synagogue, verse 10. Did the team take a little break saying, wow, was it tough work there in Thessalonica? Let's let's give a day or so here in Berea before we get started. There's no indication of that at all. They went straight to the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11, and the Jews there, we're told by Luke, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily. To see if these things were so. These things Paul was teaching. They wanted to find them in their scriptures and to prove their reality, to prove their truth. Did the scriptures really teach that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead? Did the scriptures really teach this? Because that's not the concept we've had in our minds of the Messiah. These folks were searching the scriptures to reorient their understanding of the Messiah that's presented there and it's like wow he's right it's right there on the page but is that talking about the Christ? did the scriptures point to the fact that Jesus whom Paul proclaimed is the Christ? these folks wanted to find out they wanted to find out so they dug into the scriptures But you know what? Note something about these Bereans, really important. These Bereans were interested but unbelieving Jews. Interested but unbelieving Jews, not what we often think. I don't know how many Sunday school classes there must be across America in evangelical churches called the Bereans. Right? We're... (laughs) We're interested but unbelieving Jews, skeptical about the nature of Christ, but we're going to search the Old Testament Scriptures to see if these things are so. I don't think that's what we mean by that. I think we like that description of of searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. But let's remember who's doing it and why. And that's happening here in Berea, right on the heels of Thessalonica. Still, verse 12, many of them believed And look at the therefore there. Therefore, many of them believe, suggesting that their belief was awakened by their study of the Word of God. It was the Word of God that opened their eyes and heart to the truths about Jesus that are spoken even in the Old Testament. And again, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men, Luke records here, The conversion of affluent and influential women seems not only to be a fact in this Greek world, but it seems to be a fact that's really worthy of note for Luke. And for the life of me, with all the reading I've done on this text, I can't understand why. Why is it so important to to spotlight in Thessalonica and Berea here in Macedonia why it is that these, these influential women were turning to the faith? but it's notable to see that it was touching even the highest levels of society. It's good to note that it was touching men and women alike. We can see from the jailer's home and from Cornelius' home, it appears to be touching children as well. It's touching everyone. Is it possible that the only reason this is there is to recognize the broad appeal of the gospel? And the fact that of those who are trusting Christ and who are clearly appointed to eternal life and therefore believing is including women and including women worthy of note. Those who want to talk in this day about Paul and others in the first century having a low view of women, it just is not true. Don't ever receive that and let it go unchallenged. The gospel was out on the forefront in recognizing that image bearing creatures, men and women alike, were worthy of salvation and were receiving the grace of God. You see it so clearly, and it's often pointed out in the team of women that supported Jesus in his ministry. But you see it here as well. Big point being made of it in Thessalonica and Berea as the gospel breaks into the European continent and is moving through the region of Macedonia. But a familiar scuffle followed again. An additional noteworthy matter here in this text is that the Thessalonian Jews, like the ones from Pisidian Antioch, remember, and Iconium back in Lystra in chapter 14, they were not satisfied just stamping out the gospel preaching that was happening in their own hometown. They were committed to taking their act on the road, and they did so. And the the Thessalonican Jews went down to Berea to continue their work there. These ones that had hired the mob in Thessalonica were now present in Berea. They came to Berea to continue their protest, verse 13, agitating and stirring up the crowds, and the result was familiar. Verse Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, while Silas and Timothy remained there, once again chased out of town prematurely but we have to say according to the will of God. Verse 15, Paul's escort brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from him for Paul and, or for Silas and Timothy to come join him as soon as possible, they departed, evidently headed right back to Berea, and Paul is there now in Athens, and we're set up for the more familiar half of Acts 17, which is Paul's stay in Athens, chapter 16 through verse 34 that, God willing, we will look at next Sunday. Luke doesn't say where, whether Silas and Timothy actually met Paul there in Athens the way he requested, but it appears as though they may have, and it was just unrecorded. And if that's the case, then he probably, as soon as they arrived there in Athens, he probably sent them right back to Macedonia to do some strengthening of the churches there possibly sending Silas to Philippi, but surely sending Timothy to Thessalonica, because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read of Timothy rejoining Paul, now in Corinth, coming to, them, to him from Thessalonica. So what it appears as though may have happened, Paul moves down to Athens. Timothy and Silas come down and meet him in Athens. He sends them back to Thessalonica and Berea. He moves on to Corinth, and then while he's in Corinth, they return to him again. That would suggest then that the reference in 1 Thessalonians 6 and the reference over in Acts chapter 18 to Silas and Timothy rejoining Paul were actually the same event, and there was some sending and receiving in between those two. You don't need to keep all of that straight in your mind, but it's interesting at times to get the travel log and understand what was going on here. In any case, if you wanted to write down something and look at it later, the the joining of Timothy to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 6 is probably the same event as uh, Timothy and Silas joining Paul in Acts 18 verse 5. That said, what relevant lessons does this passage hold for us today as we face suffering in our gospel witness? There's the question we want to ask. What relevant lessons? We said earlier this morning, probably nobody's favorite passage, but some relevant lessons here. Well, which relevant lessons do we want to hear that might be of help to us as we face suffering in our own gospel witness? I want to give you three quick lessons from this text. First of all, the Word of God remains central and prominent in our gospel witness, even when our culture is opposed to it. The Word of God remains central and prominent in our gospel witness, even when our culture is opposed to it. Think of Paul. He had a divine calling on his life. No doubt about that. Acts 9 depicts it. It's repeated twice more later in the book of Acts. He had a divine call on his life, he had access to supernatural guidance through Silas, whom we find out in chapter 15, verse 32, is a prophet. So Paul has a supernatural call in his life. He has access to supernatural guidance. He also has all of the argument and experience that he has amassed over the many years of his ministry, and we're way down the line at this point. We're in the 50s, so 20 years or so after the beginning of the church. Paul has all of that, and what is he doing? He is still in the synagogue, verse 2, reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming the Word of God. He never moved away from it. It was always central in what he was doing, no matter the type of opposition that he faced. And when it brought opposition Even to the point where he and Silas had to flee away by night a couple of times in this text, they didn't move off this message. They didn't leave the Word of God behind. The Word of God remained central in their ministry. They didn't apologize for it. They didn't back away from it. They didn't soften it. They didn't try to acclimate it to the situation that was going on. They worked on how to communicate it clearly, which is always a challenge, They never moved away from the Word of God. The Word of God remained central. And the Jews in Berea there received it with all eagerness. You will run into some unbelievers at times who who receive it just that way. I want to know more. I want a Bible. I want to read this thing. The Spirit's at work there. They received it with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to test what they were hearing. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. Scripture will always have the answers, my friend. Scripture will always have the answers. And those answers will always need to be discerned by digging in and discovering. Not just soundbite refutations that you can write on a poster. Not like that. But by digging in and discerning and discovering the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God that is there, of the way in which the Scriptures set us up to address the opposing views that this world throws up, and by discerning the spirit in which those refutations ought to be offered, those redirections ought to be given and communicated. When we see Scripture standing up against the thoughts of the world, we recognize that the plan of salvation was to to deliver precisely those people from those things that they're struggling with. When we see Scripture refuting the views of the world it's primarily as an invitation and an encouragement to this world that is so trapped in every sort of sin and self-absorption, We do not use the Scriptures as a club to beat them or some sort of a moral code to shame them. We use it as an invitation to call them, to proclaim the truth. That's what we see in Paul. In the next city here on this tour, Athens, verses 16 to 34, Paul will show us just how to do this. The Word of God remains central But in the way that he's presenting it, opposing culture gathers to it like bees to pollen. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what we have in the Scriptures. So no matter where or when or with whom we share the gospel or defend its truth or disciple those who receive it, no matter what opposing issues we're addressing, and there are many in our day the Word of God must remain central. There is no other fount of knowledge for this world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, hearing by the Word of God. Second, opposition is just as present as acceptance in gospel proclamation. And over time, it's even more present Opposition is just as present as acceptance in gospel proclamation, and over time, it's even more present. This was surely so here, such that the apostle Paul was run out of some towns. But even he could say that Satan hindered his work in discernible and inconvenient ways. Still, the opposition he felt was never sufficient to silence him, was never sufficient to dishearten him. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and again in chapters 11 and 12. Much opposition, much suffering, but no discouragement, because that's just the calling. That's why we're here. Jesus felt that. His followers will feel that as well even as they are trying to communicate the unchanging message with as gentle and loving a spirit as possible. As Luke was giving his ongoing narrative of Paul's second journey here, it's really interesting to note something particular. He was also essentially, through Paul's, experiencing, through Paul's experience, disarming what has come to be known as the problem of evil. He's disarming it right here. What is the problem of evil? That the presence of evil in the world is incompatible with the presence of an all-loving and an all-powerful God. If He were all-powerful, He would end the suffering. If He were all-loving, He would end the suffering. One or the other. He's either got to be lacking in love or lacking in power. But that's not what we see here we see just the opposite. The results of Paul's preaching here were undeniable evidence that an all-loving, all-powerful God was saving people according to his own will. It's undeniable. He's doing it. He's changing lives, bringing people, notable people, lofty people, people you wouldn't expect, men and women alike. An all-powerful, all-loving God is saving people right here in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Yet, His own chosen messengers carrying that message were enduring great pain and persecution all along the way. Just as Jesus said they would. Just as He explained again, not only as He was on the earth Himself preaching and teaching, but right here in Acts 9 in Paul's conversion testimony, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a message for us. Opposition is just as present as acceptance in gospel proclamation, and over time it's even more present. We see that advancing. Jesus said that it would as He talked about the progression through the last days in Matthew 24 in His Olivet Discourse. We see it getting worse and worse, closer and more intense, like birth pains. But here's how Paul and his team responded. So, my friends, we too We, too, live out daily with our lives a refutation of the problem of evil in our day, showing in our lives that suffering is not incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. We show that by how we suffer. Our attitude and our actions in the midst of our suffering must be of such a quality, as could only be enabled by just such a God, just such a God who loves and has great power, unlimited in both. But as soon as we say that, we also must realize our third lesson this morning. Only an all-powerful, all-loving God can produce this quality of endurance in His redeemed children. So our calling is to suffer as well as Paul and Silas and Timothy did. That's our calling. We're doing the same work that they've done. We're we're in their tribe. We said from the beginning of this series, we're studying our family history here. Only an all-powerful and all-loving God can produce this quality of endurance in His redeemed children. We are hopeless if we try to do this on our own. And lesson number three has to put that right in front of our eyes. We can't do it ourselves. Only God, by faith in the finished work of Christ, can so transform us that we, like Paul, never even consider the possibility of walking away from our faith or turning our back on the gospel. Or on our calling to proclaim it. Or on the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit who blessed us with it. We never even consider that possibility even against the opposition of our day because the finished work of Christ done in our hearts, received by faith, we are transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. And I don't know what suffering it might call us to, but... I want that, identification with Christ, more than I want freedom from this opposition I feel in this world. That's lesson three. Only an all-powerful, all-loving God can produce this quality of endurance in His redeemed children. And my friends, if you are uncertain how that happens, that just means you receive Christ as Saviour. You transfer your trust to him. He becomes guilty of your sin, and he paid for it on the cross. And therefore, God's justice has been satisfied. And you, by faith, can receive his righteousness and his good standing before God. That's how it happens. When that transformation happens in the human heart, we will be faithful to the point of death, just like our Savior was. He empowers us by His very grace and mercy to do so. Now, before I finish, one quick closing word to those of you who have not received the gospel. There's a word for you from this text. That word is, imitate the Bereans. Imitate the Bereans. Before you reject the word of God or the gospel, at least look into it. At least look into it. Seek to understand it. Read it. And believe what you read. Just believe it. Choose to believe what you read. And we can choose to believe what we read. Believe me, we believe many things that are unbelievable just because we chose to believe them. So that's not hard for the human species to do. We do it every single day of our lives, right? Read the Word of God and choose to believe it. Just allow the possibility that it's true and see where it leads you. Just see where it leads you. And if you have questions, come and ask. Let's talk. I would love to have that discussion. So would our elders. So would our staff. So would pretty much anybody in this body. Love to have that conversation. But that's all the time we have. In fact, that's more than the time we had. Let's now celebrate together today the body and blood, the saving work of Him who is the living Word of God. He who enables us to embrace his gospel by faith and then to endure in that faith to the praise of his glory. That's what we celebrate at the table of the Lord, the salvation price that has been paid to enable these qualities in us. Pray with me now, and as I pray, the musicians could please return to the platform and the communion servers to the front. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the experience of the Apostle Paul and Timothy in this text. Thank you for the model that they show us of the fact that leaving town, even under the cover of darkness and even after only a short time there, is not in and of itself some sign of defeat but was the will and purpose of God with relation to gospel ministry on the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. This is the work of God. This is the will of God. And they have fulfilled that to the praise of your glory. Help us, Lord God, in our day to stand firm and confident on the truths of the gospel, the truths of the word of God even if it means suffering. And help us, Father, not to turn into ones who answer with bitterness and resentment using snippets of the Word, but ones who actually proclaim the truths of the Word in the liberating way in which they are given to us there. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.